Let me ask you to uh, open your Bibles again. We are in the first letter of Peter, 1 Peter, and we are in chapter 3. And this morning I will be reading verses 13 to 22 from chapter 3. You can find that beginning on page 1295 in your pew Bibles. Hear now the word of God. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's bow together and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Lord, you have spoken to us. You have revealed yourself to us, ultimately in the revelation of Jesus Christ, your son. And so this morning, as we come to your word, we seek to know him, to be enlivened by him, to be obedient to him, to honor and praise him in all that we do. So open our minds and our hearts we may hear and understand and live according to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last weekend, uh, one of my grandkids celebrated his 11th birthday, and we had the fun, his dad, his other granddad, me, and two of his buddies to go to an escape room. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever done an escape room experience it was awesome. The, the energy of three 11-year-old boys is hard to believe. It, it really, really is. Um, and we were, in a, we were in a room called the jungle, which was all dark. So you had to have flashlights. And boys and flashlights are just kind of weird together. But anyway, the, the reality was you, you find keys that open locks that reveal clues that then you solve to get the secret of escaping from the room. That's the long and short of it. And it, in our case, it lasted 49 minutes, which is a pretty good record. We had an hour, so we beat it by about 12 minutes. But um, So you find the keys to open the locks to get the clues to solve the secret of escaping the room. And that's an escape room. I want to read to you an article that I ran across last week called The Secret of Christianity. I was thinking about, you know, Christian faith and, and the keys that we need 
to solve the challenges of life as Christians. And so this article just jumped out at me. In fact, I took the title of my sermon from this article. I'm going to read you the first couple of paragraphs, and then we'll, we'll come back to it later in, in the message. Written by Josh Holderreed, it appeared in National Review on May 5th. He begins this way. When Ian and Kelly Lindquist attended Mass together on the 1st of May last year, be 2022, they both knew it was likely Ian's last. A young and energetic father, just 35 years old, Ian was now in a wheelchair as his battle with leukemia neared its end. He would pass less than a week later. As Kelly sat in one of the well-worn pews of St. Francis de Sales Church in Washington, D.C., the same parish where four of their seven children were baptized, the familiar feeling of sanctuary embraced her. I wish we could stay here forever, she whispered to her husband. The bad guys can't get us in here. I wish we could stay here forever. The bad guys can't get us in here. So what do we make of a statement like that? I mean, is there really a place where the bad guys can't get us? If so, what are the clues or the keys, not only to getting there, but, but staying there? Could, could we possibly have like an escape room in reverse rather than trying to get out? We just want to get in and, and stay there. Last week, as I talked with you about the first chapter of First Peter, uh, Peter's letter was called by one commentator, a traveler's guide for Christian pilgrims. How, how elect exiles, which is how it begins that chapter, to the elect exiles, how elect exiles who are, are both aliens, we don't belong here, and at the same time ambassadors, we are sent here to declare the praise of God, how we are to live in the world until Jesus' return. We are to put our eyes, we watched last week, we are to put our eyes on, on our position in Christ, on, on our possession in Christ, our prospects in him, and ultimately our purpose in him. And all of that in order, as Peter says, to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we do these things to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Paul says we, we praise God because we have been born again into a new and living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 3 of chapter 1. So, so Jesus' resurrection and, and Jesus' revelation are two, I'm going to say, critical clues for solving the secret of Christian living, the secret of Christianity. And so we're going to continue to follow Peter's traveler's guide for pilgrims today as we look at this passage. And I'm going to suggest, if you have the outline in, in your bulletin, that, that there are three areas that we need to explore more closely if we're going to, quote, solve the secret of Christianity. That is to live faithful and fruitful lives as elect exiles called to be both aliens and ambassadors in this world. 
Now, again, if you have your Bibles in front of me, I'm going to back up a little before we started reading to verse 8 in the ESV in the pew. It's titled, Suffering for Righteousness' Sake. Suffering for Righteousness' Sake. And Peter begins, finally, finally, as a way of summing up all of you, and then he says, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now, Peter's concern throughout the book is to, is to our, both our lifestyle and our witness. Over and over again, we were reminded, if you, if you go back and if you want, just turn back to chapter 1. In fact, you don't even have to turn the page. It's the top of the left-hand column. Verse 15 of chapter 1, Peter says, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And then you jump down to verse 22. Peter says, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And then verse 12 of chapter 2, again, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of humiliation or the day of visitation. And then in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So over and over and over again, as we come to today's passage, Peter is concerned that his hearers, that you and I, live lives that reflect the calling that we have in Jesus Christ. We are his. And therefore, we are told that we need to put away these things or put on these things all of them for the purpose, verse 9, to bless that we may indeed obtain a blessing. And then Peter cites Psalm 34, verses 10, 11, and 12 here are from Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16. If you want to love life, you want to see good days, here's what you need to do. Keep your tongue from evil. Keep your lips from spreading deceit. Turn away from evil. Do good. Seek peace. Pursue it. Why? Because the Lord sees that. His eyes are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And he concludes with a question there in in verse 13, where we began our reading. Now, these being so, you following these rules, you following this, what I call honest life, who is there to harm you if you do good? Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now, Peter's reciting or at least referring to Psalm 56 where in verse 11, we read, In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And then if you're more familiar with Romans 8, verse 31, Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So here we've got three witnesses. We have Peter here in chapter 3. We have Paul in Romans 8. We have the psalmist in chapter 56. In God, we trust what command do us, do to us. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Now, I don't mean to be flippant, but it's, it would be understandable perhaps to think that 
one way that the bad guys can't get us is just live an honest life. Do well, and you will be treated well. Quid quo pro. Quid pro quo. But, but, notice verse 14. Verse 14 begins with but. But is a strong adversative. Who's going to harm you if you're zealous for doing what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. In other words, what if the bad guys do get you? If you suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll still be blessed. Peter says as much in in, in verse 19 and 20 of chapter 2. This is a gracious thing. When one is mindful of God, one endures sufferings while suffering unjustly, or sorrows while suffering unjustly. But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. To this you were called. And again, he goes to the same theme in chapter 4. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Peter says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Again, he's reaching back into his Old Testament knowledge, at least implying Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah has been called by the Lord in chapter 6. You perhaps recall that, the vision that he has while in the temple of God high and holy and lifted up and, and of the angels surrounding him crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so as the Lord continues to declare his call to Isaiah, Isaiah kind of looks around at both the world around him and the administration in which he serves, and he sees that there's maybe some issues. People might not like the ministry that he's called to. And the Lord says this to him, warning him, me, says Isaiah, warning me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. In other words, God is the one you are to fear. You recall when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were, were confronted by Nebuchadnezzar, he said, look, if you don't bow down at the sound of the music, you're all going into the fiery furnace. And you recall what they said. They said, Oh, Lord, I mean, oh, King, live forever. Our God is able to save us from your fire. But even if he doesn't, we're not bound down to you. In other words, we honor God, not worship the kings, the idols, the institutions or powers of this world. And how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, in this next verse, I think that the... Um, Verse 15 is just a little weak here in the ESV. I like what the NIV says. Rather than in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Now that language comes really from Isaiah 8 because he says, the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor is holy. But I think what, what Peter's saying here, the NIV says, but in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. 
Now, Lord is the, you know, in Greek, Lord is the one who rules all things. He's the one with authority. He is the one in, in position of command. And Peter is saying to his hearers, look, don't be afraid of them. Be prepared to make a defense. But you can do that only if in your heart you set apart Christ as Lord. That is this one who died upon the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, who was put to death under the Romans at the insistence of the Jewish authorities. You need to be sure that you sanctify, that is, set apart that one as Lord of all. He is the ruler of all creation. And when you understand that, when not just honor him as holy, which we are called to do, but set him apart, sanctify him as the Lord of all things, then, then you can be prepared to make a defense to anybody who asks you why you have a hope. What is your hope? My hope is in the Lord who made heaven and earth. My hope is in the one who has given me new life by his grace and mercy. My hope is in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not just honoring as holy, as important as that is, but we are confidently embracing and recognizing and understanding who Jesus is. And, and with that kind of settled conviction, then you can be ready to give a reason. Because your conviction, your hope is not based on circumstances around you. Your, your, your hope is not based on whether the stock market has gone up and down or whether, you know, you and your wife are getting along or, or, or whether, you know, you've just lost your job. That's not the point. Hope is not based in those things. It is based in the fact that Christ is Lord. And now I have hope. And now when I'm asked for that, why do you hope in these things i can respond but notice what he says in 15 with gentleness and respect in other words we have a humble witness you know that there's nothing more self-contradictory than a proud christian in that sense you were not responsible for anything that you have you did not suddenly wake up in the middle of the night and go aha i figured it out jesus is the lord no as, as Jesus says to Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven made you know who I am. And so when, when we know Jesus as Lord, it is because God has given us new birth in him. And what is there to be proud of? So we need to be sure that our, our telling of our reason, our speaking of our hope, you know, of, of explaining why we can stand, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do, Lord, I mean king live forever but here's the deal i serve my god and if he rescues me great and if he doesn't that's still okay because i'm with him then but that's my hope and it's nothing that i can take pride in myself it's just the something that i can speak about as paul says excuse me as peter with gentleness and respect having a good conscience having a good conscience I, i've done what is right I've spoken carefully, humbly, the things that are true, and now I'm free in my conscience. And maybe you think, okay, so the honest life didn't work to shelter me, but, but maybe the humble witness will allow me to live without the bad guys getting me. Notice the very next verse, though, 16. 
doesn't say have a good conscience so that if you're slandered. It says have a good conscience so that when you're slandered. We live in a world that is going to attack us as believers for the things we stand for, for the things we believe. Ultimately, of course, for the fact that we worship God and him alone. We will be slandered. We will be reviled. We will be persecuted. Now, you don't, you don't have to delve too far into the evening news to figure that out. But I'm not here to, you know, scaremonger. I'm here to say that when, as Peter says, when this happens, those who do so will be put to shame because of our good life in Christ. So, it's still better to do good than evil, he says. Verse 17, it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So, if a good moral life, if honest life, and humble witness, a confident, theologically sound testimony are both important, but neither is the secret of Christianity which keeps the bad guys from getting us, what is the key? Well, here we come to this next section of Peter's Travel Guide for Pilgrims. Uh, I want to say, just as we enter this, it's perhaps one of the most difficult debated passages in the entire New Testament. Um, attempts to navigate this not only can step on theological toes, but they can also kill sacred cows. Um, maybe a whole herd of sacred cows. I don't know where you stand in this passage, but still, fools rush in where angels fear to tread, and, and Pastor Wesley's in charge, so I'll let him clean up the mess when he comes back <laughs> next week. But right now, I want, to try to, I want to try to work through this with you, all right? You notice I need water for this. It's like when I hit in the sand trap. I say, I better take a canteen. It's going to take a long time to get out of there. So we're going to take a little while to get out of here, believe me. So I call this holy faith. I want, to, I want to go through it with you sort of bit by bit, see if we can unfold it together to arrive at this secret of Christianity. So transitioning out of verse 17 where Peter says, it's better to suffer for doing good than doing evil. He goes right to the reality that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. In other words, Jesus suffered for doing good, Right? In fact, he's the very model of doing good. Again, in verse 17, if we should suffer for doing good, if that's God's will, it's better to do that than do evil. Well, what was Jesus doing? He was doing God's will, suffering for our sins, sinless himself, that he might bring us to God. That was his purpose. In his suffering, his doing good, According to the will of God, it was to bring us to God. And so, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And while our translation doesn't do that, many would put capital S there in the spirit, in the Holy Spirit. Put to death in his physical body, but, but made alive in the Spirit, by the Spirit, through the Spirit, in which... Now, I'm going to change the reading here, verses 19 to 20, because I don't think that this does well. Listen to this carefully, and I'll repeat it. This is verses 19 and 20. Made alive by the Spirit, in whom... 
in whom, that is in the Spirit, he, that is Jesus, in the Spirit, Jesus went and preached to those who are now spirits in prison. That could be an appositional phrase. To those, parenthesis, who are now spirits in prison. When, when did he preach? When they disobeyed formally when God's patient was waiting in the days of Noah. In other words, if I can follow this. So Jesus is dead in the flesh, but made alive by God in the spirit, in whom he, Jesus in the spirit, preached in Noah's day. Now, that's not as far afield as you might think. Back in chapter 1, verse 10, I'm going to have you turn back there because I don't want you rushing the pulpit for heresy. Turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Peter says this, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time, now notice this, what? The spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering, who? The spirit of Christ, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, if Peter can say that the spirit of Christ was in the prophets speaking of the Christ's suffering and glory, then it's not much of a stretch. In fact, it's no stretch of all to consider that the same spirit of Christ was in Noah preaching the message of repentance and judgment. Back in chapter 2, or yes, in chapter 2, verse 5 of, of Second Peter, Peter calls Noah a herald or a preacher of righteousness. So as a preacher of righteousness, Noah speaking in the spirit of Christ, the same way other prophets spoke in the spirit of Christ, preaches to the disobedient sinners of his day as he's building the ark and as God is showing patience. All right, we don't, we don't have to think about there being a, you know, a second chance for salvation or that everybody's saved because you get, a, you, know, you get another bite at the apple after you're dead. That's not what it's saying here. It's saying that the spirit of Christ, that is the spirit of the word of God, is in the prophets who predicted the life of Jesus and, of course, his ultimate glorification, including his sufferings. And Peter says, look, Jesus, who suffered for doing good, doing God's will, went and preached to the spirits now in prison. They're there now. They're done and over and locked away. But when they were alive in rebellion... Noah, by the Spirit of Christ, preached to them of the judgment to come and of God's salvation, would they but accept it. They needed to repent, but they would not. And as a result, then, we'll go on through the passage. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. All right? Nobody listened. Nobody repented. Only those who believed Noah, his family, went into the ark and were saved, brought safely through water. Now, 
Verse 21 starts with the word baptism, but I'm going to use a different translation again. NIV says, or excuse me, the New English translation, NET says, In the ark, only a few people were saved through water, and this prefigured, NIV NIV says, symbolizes baptism, which now saves you. Not the washing off of physical dirt, but the pledge or response of a good conscience to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, there's just a couple things here which we need to recognize. The Old Testament uses... Uh, what's called types and antitypes. Uh, for instance, when it talks about when, Moaz, when Moses is given the directions for building the tabernacle, he is to build it according to the heavenly type. So in the Old Testament, the heavenly things are the type, and what happens on earth is the antitype. So here's the type in heaven, build it that way, and now there's a real tabernacle and a real ark and all that sort of thing, and that is the antitype. And that happens over and over again. Uh, In the book of Hebrews, we're we're told that the heavenly reality is the type and the horizontal or the earthly ones are the antitype. And in Peter, his typology isn't about heavenly and earthly things. His typology is historical. So what comes first in history in the Old Testament is the type, and then what Christ fulfills is the antitype. So now we have the question, what is the type which is being prefigured? The flood and rescue in the ark is the type which points to the antitype. And the antitype is baptism. R-E-S-V says baptism, which corresponds. That's just not strong enough. Baptism is the antitype fulfillment of the Old Testament symbolism of the ark and its salvation. Now, you ask yourself, who got into the ark? Well, only the people who believed. Do I believe that God is going to bring judgment on this world and all of us are going to be destroyed? I don't want that to happen. I better get in that ark. The only people who got in the ark were the ones who believed that God would save them through the ark, from the water, through the water. Peter is saying, who goes into baptism? Only the people who believe that there's going to be a judgment in which all those who are not safe in the ark will be destroyed. I don't want to be one of those. I want to get into the ark, that is, into Not baptism to wash off dirt, but baptism, as it says here, not as an appeal to God for a good conscience, but rather as a source or as a pledge of good conscience. In other words, my conscience is such that I am aware of my sinfulness, that I know myself to be lost before a holy God. And what I am doing in getting into the ark in baptism, which is the antitype, is I am acknowledging my sinfulness and I am claiming the righteousness of Christ as my covering so that in the ark of baptism, I am saved 
Just the same way that Noah and his family in the ark of old were saved. Now, baptism, Peter says, doesn't save us. What does? Well, again, the ESV is just perhaps a little weak. But this, the ark saving people through water, prefigures or symbolizes, or the Greek word is actually antitype, baptism, which now saves you, not washing of physical dirt, but a response of a good conscience to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is, my conscience convicting me, leading me to confess and repent and lay myself at the mercy of God. That's what I bring, if you will, to God in baptism. And as a result, the resurrection of Christ, which Peter spoke as we preached last week. It is the resurrection of Christ which is the ground of our salvation, not my hearing about it. Okay, my hearing about it is how I respond. But my hearing about the gospel does not implement my salvation. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ground of my salvation. And that's why, as I said last week, we don't turn our faith off and on like a blinker. Our faith is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus who has brought us salvation. So when I enter into the ark of baptism, if you will, that's still just a symbol of what it really points to. And what it points to is the salvation of Jesus. That that his act in his death and resurrection is underneath in the foundation for anything I do as as a believer. His initiative is always first. And Paul says then, now through the resurrection of Christ, who has gone into heaven and is the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers now subject to him. You see, Christ's death for our sins that brought us to God was accomplished in his death and resurrection. And then he died to bring us to God, to bring us where he is right now. And I want to say that this, then, is the the secret of Christianity. This is the holy faith, which which changed Peter from a man who, who cowered in fear in the corner of a courtyard at the words of a servant girl. And, and then just mere weeks later, 50 days or so later, he stands in front of the very Sanhedrin which had condemned Jesus to death. And he says to them, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And, and Acts goes on to tell us that, that when the Sanhedrin saw that these unlearned, uneducated, common men had such boldness, they were astonished. And it says they, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But here's what I want to say. Yes, Peter had been with Jesus. But what made him bold was Jesus was now with Peter. Jesus was now with Peter. And that's the key to his escape from the fear of men, from the censure of the Sanhedrin, ultimately from the sword of the Roman magistrates, from the fury of, of Satan. Jesus is now with Peter. I want to read to you, as I close, the last couple paragraphs 
from this secret of Christianity. The author, Josh Holdenreed, is a friend, or was a friend, of Ian Lindquist. They had met years previously. He tells of them being in the Holy Land together back in 2016. And they were at the Garden of Gethsemane and at the Catholic Church there, the uh, Basilica of the Agony. He tells of kneeling beside Ian and reflecting they both were considering the prayer of Jesus. You know, Father, if it is possible, may this cup pass from me, but if not, then you will be done. Josh writes this. We could not have known that years later, Ian would be making a similar prayer as he battled a rare and aggressive form of cancer. As a young husband, father, and educator, he had much to live for and much to offer. Intercessions and novenas were prayed in hopes that God would miraculously heal Ian of his sickness. But God had other plans, plans whose design Ian trusted completely by virtue of a faith whose cornerstone was firmly set long ago. That is why when Kelly told her husband that she wished they could stay inside the sanctuary of their church forever where the bad guys couldn't get them, Ian simply replied, that's the secret of Christianity. The bad guys can't get you anywhere. Why? Because Jesus is with us everywhere. He has risen from the dead. He has ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And as we read in this morning's gospel, he has sent his spirit that he might be with us until he returns for us. That's the secret of Christianity. The bad guys can't get you anywhere. Let's bow together. Father, how we rejoice that we serve a living Savior, that we have a redemption in his blood, and that he draws near to us in every circumstance he is at hand. And so we praise you and we rejoice in our risen and reigning Savior knowing that in him we are secure. For this we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.